This one's a big one, a crucial cyclical indicator in a key part of the global economy, and it's down huge. We've been saying, at least recently, that the deflationary economy has been more about prices than it has been about labor, though we still expect that will, that will change in the near future where it'll become a lot more about labor and a little bit less about prices. But for right now, the deflationary prices are dominating and we got another big one in a big place. Before we talk about that though, we also got an indication that maybe the labor market is trying to catch up to falling prices. Jobless claims in the United States rose in the previous week to 261,000, which was the highest weekly total since October 2021, which maybe suggests the labor market in the U.S. has turned a corner. We've talked about the payroll report. The establishment survey thinks one thing. The other part of the establishment survey thinks that we're in a recession. Maybe jobless claims are coming down on the other side, the recession side, the deflationary side. Maybe this is the beginning of the long expected spike. Then again, jobless claims is a noisy data series and it has a tendency to get revised all over the place on top of the fact that this was a seasonally adjusted number for a holiday weekend. So we can't put nearly as much stock into it as we might like, but it might represent the beginning of the shift from deflationary prices into deflationary labor markets. We'll keep our eye on that. But the big one right now continues to be deflation in actual prices. Producer prices we talked about in Europe down by a record amount, a record monthly amount in the month of April. This one is from China. But before we get to the numbers specifically, let's back up a little bit because you have to also put the in context of Remember earlier in the year where all sorts of headlines talking about China's massive credit impulse, China's companies are borrowing at record, at record paces, not rates, the rates were actually kind of mid-level, but China's companies were borrowing hand over fist and that was gonna reignite the global economy, that was gonna spark renewed inflation because this massive pent up demand from Chinese consumers as well as now these companies that were borrowing as much as they could get their hands on, it was going to lead to transitory disinflation, not just in China, but also the rest of the world, because all of that activity that was going to be unleashed from so much borrowing would obviously be a boost for the global economy. Here's just one example, a headline from the South China Morning Post. China new bank loans jump, first quarter lending hits record 1.3 trillion in US dollar terms, further acceleration expected. Expected by whom? That's always the question. This article was from early April after the PBOC published the numbers on the debt statistics and the credit statistics, its financial statistics report. And it was already stale. It was already dated because the markets like CNY, China's yuan to the dollar, as well as long-term Japanese government bond yields, even commodity prices had began betting against all of this credit impulse nonsense. And of course, that's exactly what happened. By the time we get to April, credit, credit had already begun to roll over, especially in the household sector, especially in loans that were related to financing, real estate, and everything else. And I think what happened is a common misperception, a common mistake that a lot of people make. And it's the same mistake that people made last year when they saw a big jump in commercial industrial loans in the United States as well as in Europe. 
China's companies weren't borrowing to start reinvesting all over the place and rebuilding China and making the global economy healthy again. China's companies appear to have been doing the same thing that American and European companies were doing leading up to this recession. They were becoming defensive. Plus, you also have to keep in mind that in China, any credit statistics that are in the early part of the year could be more about quotas and window dressing than actual economic and financial activity, legitimate activity. And in many cases, Chinese companies will help their local governments out, help their bank, their local banks out, borrow the funds, and then just leave them on deposit with the bank, working out some kind of interest rate mechanism to make sure that everybody is made whole. But either way, you could, have, you could have and should have interpreted that increase in borrowing as another part of this global defense mechanism where companies like consumers in China have been building up cash cushions, not anticipating unleashing a torrent of spending and activity, but in anticipation of exactly what we're going to see in China's economic statistics. This one, a really concerning number in terms of prices, but first, I'm Jeff, this is Eurodollar University. Thank you very much for joining me. As always, if you're interested, Eurodollar University has memberships available. We dive deep into what a Eurodollar is, what the Eurodollar system actually is, and what it's supposed to do. What is a global reserve currency? What is its task? What does it need to do? Also have research subscriptions, a daily briefing. I contribute to marketsinsiderpro.com. That's a bundle with Stephen Van Meter and Tracy Shukart as well as a deep dive analysis, a daily deep dive analysis at the Eurodollar University website, where we dive deep into all of these things from China to Europe, to money, to macro, what it means about what's going on today. All the information for you at eurodollar.university. So credit in America, just like credit in Europe, Europe's even more advanced than it is in the United States, those have rolled over and headed into the recession sort of the recession part of the process. And I think we might have seen the same thing in China because though we only have the data up through the month of April, next week we'll get the May figures. But for, even in April, they had this big sharp rise, unanticipated rise. There was a surge of lending in R&B terms to especially Chinese companies that were thinking, okay, Maybe they're starting to borrow. It's unusual to borrow this much in March, but it might also have been, as I said before, companies anticipating not just a slowdown or a failure of reopening, but going beyond it. They could tell even by, uh, especially by April, that reopening wasn't providing the boost inside China, let alone outside China, that everyone had been advertising. And if you just think ahead, especially with global headwinds, external negative pressures hitting China from all sides, especially in the manufacturing sector, if you're one of China's corporate managers, you might think to yourself, yeah, I might wanna start lending some funds, not because I wanna use them in expanding my business, but I wanna make sure, given all of the negative pressures I see everywhere, including inside China, that we have enough liquidity that we're not gonna run into any sort of trouble ourselves. Again, it's a defensive measure, not an economic growth measure. Had it been the latter rather than the former, we would expect prices, of course, in China to turn around because they had been weak all last year. 
producer as well as consumer prices, though consumer prices did accelerate because of food, non-economic factors in 2022. But either way, had the credit impulse been an actual credit impulse rather than something else, rather than this defensive mechanism I'm talking about, then we would expect especially producer prices to turn around as companies put these funds to use and start building out things again demanding materials from the rest of the world. So commodity prices should have turned around at the very least. That's factory gate in the language of the NBS and its PPI and producer price index numbers, producer price set numbers. But it never happened. Instead, producer prices have been falling really since last November on a year over year basis, as well as on individual monthly basis too. And it was a small little negative, you know, little year over year negatives at the end last year and the beginning part of this year. But around February into March and then now April, April and May, the downside, the deflationary downside has materially accelerated so that the statistics we get now, they're comparable to 2016 in China, which was a really, that's a really bad comparison to make. The numbers the China's PPI was off 4.6% year over year. That's the worst since February 2016, the early part of 2016, when China and the rest of the emerging market economies were in a world of hurt. The global economy was in a really bad shape in 2016. That's worse than at any, any point in any month in 2020. And as we've pointed out on this channel many times before, China's PPI is among the better cyclical indicators that you're going to find anywhere. Not just about what's going on in China, but what China, the Chinese economy tells us about what must be happening around the rest of the world. So unlike the U.S. payroll report, China's PPI is accelerating to the downside. It was down 0.9% month over month in the month of May alone. And over the last six months, these reopening months, it has been negative in four out of the six, and it was zero in the other two. So producer prices tell you of ongoing weakness, deflationary weakness, overcapacity, lack of demand in China's economy. Factory gate prices, which are the prices of stuff coming into the factories, those are even worse. Consumer prices, they didn't get all that much better either. In fact, consumer prices were up just 0.2% year over year though, a lot of that was due to the base effects, as I mentioned before, China's CPI food prices were rather high and accelerating in 2022. So don't put much stock in the year over year increase, but the month over month increase was minus 0.2%, which was the fourth straight monthly decline this year. Four straight months, February, March, April, and May, which that's reopening. Where are China's consumers? Where is all of this pent up demand? Companies as well as households that are supposed to be on the cusp, ready to get let loose on this, all this energy that they've, they've been forced to sit on for all these last couple of years of lockdowns. It's not happening. It's not happening. And we need to ask why it's not happening. Why isn't it? I mean, everybody thought that this was going to be a huge deal. And the fact that it's going in the opposite direction tells us a lot more about than a lot more than just what's going on in China. There's a lot of deeper structural negatives here that have to do with the global economy, all these negative external pressures, as well as 
the big, big internal problem in China, which is the real estate and property sector. But of course, the worse China reopening goes, the worse the China's economy gets, the more people are convinced this is a good thing. If China reopening doesn't save, save the world, then the failure of China reopening will do the same thing because this just means it will unleash a tidal wave of stimulus. Beijing will go back into the Keynesian textbook and monetary and fiscal spending, monetary low rates, flood of liquidity, fiscal spending through state-owned investments or state-owned uh, enterprises. They're going to build out go more ghost cities. At least that's the idea. And as we get more and more negative statistics, more and more negative indications on the Chinese economy that pertain to the global economy too, you see this rumor, you see this idea take hold. There's an article from Reuters earlier this week. China property stocks listed in Hong Kong jumped as much as 7.9% on Tuesday as investors clung to hopes that Beijing would roll out more supportive measures soon to bolster the embattled sector. And it's not going to happen. I've said repeatedly since for years, but on the show since consistency length, since consistently since last fall, China's not in the stimulus business anymore and hasn't been for really since 2016, the last time China's PPI was falling at this incredible rate. The last time the global economy was experiencing this level of trade recession for economic reasons. And the last time that we had to really consider around a, a big chunk of the rest of the world, this type of deflationary impact. But a lot has changed since then. And a lot of it has to do with Mr. Xi Jinping, who has basically said, this is what it is. China's economy is on a course to do what China's economy is going to do on its own, not counting on the rest of the global economy like, China's, like China had done up until around 2011 or so. Because under Deng Xiaoping's paradigm, the Chinese uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics had been reoriented to allow a limited, limited, uh, limited free market capitalism to take hold, to transform China's economy from the backwards, dangerous uh, subsistence agriculture under Mao to become this shining industrial modern powerhouse that could then complete the socialist transformation. The problem was that whole thing in 2007 and 2008 represented more than a great recession. It represented a rupture in the global economy, which for China meant an end to the fantasy. China's ability to ride this wave of globalization over the, the last decade of the 90s and the first half of the first decade of the 21st century, that was out the door. The rest of the global economy wasn't coming back. There was no recovery and China knew it right away by 2012. And so the Chinese completely changed their methodology, giving it one last try in 2016, but not long after that, realizing it wasn't working, realizing that the Keynesian textbook was only leading to more problems, not actual legitimate sustainable economic growth, more problems, particularly in the real estate sector. Because during China's massive run-up, the real estate sector, in particular, in particular developers and financers, were given privilege because they were necessary to that build-everything-at-all-cost mentality. So despite the fact that even today people are hoping China's government bails out the sector, bails out just real estate but the entire economy, 
PBOC Governor Yi Gang just, I think today or yesterday, poured cold water all over it. First of all, he thinks China's economy will strengthen in the second part of the year anyway, but even if it doesn't, they don't have any intentions to change at all. China's central bank will keep monetary policy targeted, ensure credit growth is stable, Governor Yi Gang said, keeping the policy stance largely unchanged despite rising calls for more stimulus because China's reopening has failed that badly. And contrary to Yi's uh, claims, the economy is accelerating to the downside. That's what the data actually shows, the deflationary data. The failure, the utter complete failure of China's reopening is not just about China and it has implications far beyond its borders. Think about it this way. How many businesses in the US or Europe around the world have been counting on a second half rebound before they start laying off workers, before they really start cutting their inventories, before they really make drastic changes? China was supposed to be part of the resurgence story along with Europe and everybody else, the US labor market. And the more these narratives come up, not just short, but completely fail, the more companies take a more a realistic approach to the economy in the second half rebound and say, I can't wait for this. I can't wait for a second half rebound because it's not going to happen. Every time they tell us one of these stories, China reopening, Europe's resurgent, it never comes to pass. So not only will China have a direct negative impact on the global economy, plus the real estate sector, as it's already doing, represented in its, its negative deflationary PPI numbers, there's also sentimental spillover, which will be incredibly powerful too. Deflation in the real economy, big deflation in a place we can least afford it. But it tells us something important about the direction for the rest of this year. And that's accelerating to the downside, the deflationary downside. I'm Jeff, this is Eurodollar University. Thank you very much for joining me. As always, huge thank you. Eurodollar University research subscribers, marketsinsiderpro.com research subscribers, and of course, our Eurodollar University members. Thank you very much. And until next time, take care.